0: This is the Bitcoin Made Simple podcast. Here's your host Corey Tusick This is the Bitcoin Made Simple podcast. I'm your host Corey Tusick On today's show, I interviewed Dan Held. Dan is with Kraken and a longtime Bitcoiner. Uh, big background in you know tech and and uh, worked with Uber and so on. Um, but uh, with, with Dan, we talked about uh, Bitcoin's early days and went to hear what it was like, you know, back in uh, Silicon Valley back in, you know, 2012, 13, whenever it was, he was back there. And then, um, you know, we also talked about Bitcoiners who've gone astray and, you know, if there could ever be a reconciliation with them. And uh, is this the super cycle that, uh, you know, Bitcoin just takes off and goes to the moon? So uh, we talked about all those things and I really enjoyed my conversation with them. Um, if you want to reach out to me, just email me. Uh, the show email is bitcoinmade simple podcast at gmail.com and follow me on twitter at Bitcoin Simply. thanks for listening and without further ado here's my interview with Dan Held yeah i'm starting to learn this uh you know this uh, this podcasting world it's a it's a lot different than than what i come from so i'm like you know there's no like additional takes i think that's like the weird thing for me is it like you know if like something gets screwed up usually it's like okay just run that again like it's really hard to do that with like a podcast. Or like, uh, where were we? Like, um, yeah, let me. Because there's,
1: there's that flow in conversation that's really hard to like stop and start. You know, it's 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 tricky.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, well, hey, thanks for coming on, Dan. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks
1: for having me. I'm I'm super excited. It's uh, I think there was a lot of good questions. That there's like like yeah. over
0: seventy questions. I know. I was, was impressed. It was hard to keep up with them.
1: <laughs> welcome to my day-to-day i get like over 300 comments on my tweets daily so it's just kind of like people asking
0: of- you like oh uh what do you, how do you do this and what should i do should i buy should i sell
1: yeah. questions love hate the whole gamut
0: oh yeah yeah that's that's why i literally it's hard for me to keep up with that because i'm like anti-social media and like i'm i don't do any of it so this is like really weird for me to be like operating like something like that and like actually have to like interact with people because I'm like, typically I was like, I don't care. People are like, oh my God, do you see what happened? I'm like, no, I, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Uh, crypto, crypto Twitter is an endless sea of drama. So, you know. Oh no man, that's, that is something I was not ready for. I'll tell you that. Uh, it is it is a sea of drama. um So anyways, I guess to get started, uh, well, I had to have you on Bitcoin Made Simple because the header on your, (laughs) on your Twitter profile said, I explain Bitcoin simply and my Twitter handle is Bitcoin simply. So um, I figured it was a perfect fit. Um, So let's start there before we get into like the background of everything. Cause uh, you know, one of the things I like to ask is how would you like the Michael Scott explain it to me? Like I'm five, Um, you know, so how, what's the easiest way to explain it to newcomers, to, to Bitcoin? And and I think this is good for anybody that isn't a newcomer so that they can kind of help like craft their own narrative because everybody's getting family and friends to ask them about it now. Yeah, let
1: me start with first. Why is explaining something simple critical? Like why is it important? I learned this when I worked at Uber. So Uber required a TLDR. Too long didn't read on long form projects, on long emails. To give people the information they need right away. Explaining things simplistically should be a core part of learning. Like when we go to school, storytelling and being able to condense narratives and condense what you're doing and why it's important and communicating that with people, that should be what we learn in school. But instead, school teaches you to write five pages. It should Mm be write the least amount of words to explain what happened in this book. (laughs) You know, so We've been, we've been programmed to be very eloquent and, and long-winded, but we ain't got time for that. The world moves fast and people want to get the, that nugget of wisdom right away. By compressing the narrative, we're making it very simple, you increase the propagation of the narrative because people can absorb it and understand it versus a lot of people think that the content, you know the content is important, uh, but the content itself, it's formatting increases its distribution rate. So if the content isn't compelling, or takes a really long time to process, that's going to decrease the propagation rate of the content. So that's sort of my philosophical feelings about simplicity and why that's important in general. And for Bitcoin, Bitcoin is such a hairy, complex topic. I mean, John Oliver puts it really well, Bitcoin feels like everything you don't understand about money with everything you don't understand about computers. That's, <laughs> that's the vibe when people first hear the word Bitcoin and they hear the word encryption or private key, their eyes glaze over. It's critically important that we convey Bitcoin in a simple manner. So, with that being said, how do we describe Bitcoin? A lot of folks like to start with, oh, it's um, peer to peer, it's encryption. You know, they throw out words like Mm -hmm. peer to peer, encryption, private key. Those all aren't, that's not verbiage that resonates with a mainstream audience. We have to always think about our audience for our message. So, what words do they understand? For example, Bitcoin is gold 2.0. Is a very compressed, very tight narrative. Everyone understands gold. It's a nice reference point. From there, we can look back at Bitcoin and go, oh, or it's digital gold. Gold 2.0 or digital gold, I think are the most compressed versions of what Bitcoin is that is easily understood by a, a common person. So I, th- I love those because they're just so simple, so tight, so compressed, have real-world existing, uh, existing sort of frameworks, now, for someone who might be a little bit more financially like financially savvy or understand a little bit more about tech, you know, you could wax on a little bit more saying that like Bitcoin's core value props are in its monetary policy and immutability and transactability. So the idea that when you store value in Bitcoin, no one else can change that monetary policy, unlike all the governments that we have currently that are engaging in money printer burr. And you can engage in commerce with any other individual on the planet, and there's no way that they can be censored. So those are Bitcoin's core two value props. The most compressed version of that is gold 2.0. The, you know, if you have more time to explain it, you can, you can talk about the value props. And that's probably where I would start with any sort of newbie. I think something important here, if we're giving Bitcoiners advice about how to approach people, if you front run the feeling that they have, that's going to go a long way. For example, I just talked to the chairman of a huge company recently, and I can't disclose it for privacy reasons. Oh, man,
0: there goes the scoop. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, it was pretty cool. The way that I approached it is I'm like, okay, this guy's in his 60s. He's curious about Bitcoin, but not a Bitcoiner. You can't go in with the hard pitch. I went in and I said, look, you've taken the great step of, of learning more about Bitcoin. I think that's admirable. That's That shows maturity already already, that you're open-minded and that you want to check this out. I'm not going to convince you about Bitcoin in one sitting. (laughs) Even me, after talking about Bitcoin for eight years, I can't convince someone. It's very rare I convince someone in one sitting. So I'm like, look, just keep an open mind. We'll talk about it. If you feel like, you know, afterwards that you haven't fully gotten Bitcoin yet, that's normal. And then you provide the materials to go kind of discover on their own or set up another call to talk. So I think that's an important approach because a lot of Bitcoiners, and I've done this too early on we feel so passionate about Bitcoin. We want to go in, give them the hard sell Mm -hmm. and try to convert them immediately. But Bitcoin is a little bit of a repeat exposure sort of a product or protocol to where people have heard about Bitcoin before you mentioned it to them, for sure. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin's brand awareness is that high. And now you're coming in with facts to help convert them from the awareness level to consideration going, oh, I've heard about Bitcoin. Maybe I should buy it. And sometimes a hard pitch can come across a little intense and so, you know, just admitting to them like, "Hey, I understand where you're coming from. I understand how you feel. It's really confusing," and we're I'm trying to I'm going to try to get you closer to understanding it. But don't feel bad if you don't understand it after this conversation.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I feel that because um, I mean, it took me seven years to convince myself to buy it. Um, you know, so <laughs> so whenever, but then as soon as you get it, I think part of that is that once you get it. You realize how everybody's missing the boat. So you like you just want to come in like word vomit, like bah, you know, like hurry up, buy it. Oh my God, it's you gotta get it now. Um and uh and yeah, you gotta have that appreciation for it's the it's gonna take uh, you know, in theory. I mean, I guess I look at it, my my parents moved quicker from discovery to investing because of me, me pushing them. But I was like, wow, that took them like no time compared to how long it took me. I mean, I heard about it in 2012 and drag my feet, drag my feet. Like, oh, uh, you know, I'll get to it eventually. Um, so yeah, I it, um, it totally, totally understand where you're coming from. And that's what I feel so
1: passionate about. And that's why I want to empower every Bitcoiner to feel like they're part of Bitcoin's marketing team. We all have our own narrative of like why Bitcoin matters. And we have our different ways of explaining it. You've got your podcast. People do video content. People have written content. And it's. Uh, I think it's part of our mission here to make that ladder a little bit shorter. For your parents, you were a critical aspect of making that ladder instead of a 10 foot climb. Now it's a three foot climb mm-hmm. uh, from, from like hearing about it to understanding it. And so that's what I like the most about speaking about Bitcoin is that I'm just making that ladder shorter. And it's really cool to see people convert much faster than you and I, I mean, we, we took a long time. Like, you know, I, I've told people this before I dabbled in alts in 2013, 2014, mm-hmm. um, no one's ever a perfect Bitcoiner. And, yeah. uh, and I also <laughs> day traded poorly <laughs> a little bit. So, yeah, it's it's um, it's really exciting to be able to like play a part in making that ladder shorter.
0: Yeah. Well, like uh, I had um, Isaiah Jackson on and and uh, he said, all roads lead back to Bitcoin, you know, and um, and so people that are like, you know, the, the and they think, you know, when they go Bitcoin maximalist and everything like that, it's like, no, I mean, like it's just it can all work on top of Bitcoin you know, it, it really will eventually, like, there are cool ideas in the alt world, but you know, I, I couldn't, I got, there was I, my, I had interviewed surfer Jim and I posted a clip about it and somebody commented on there about like how, Ethereum and, you know, like why it's not a better store of value. And I said, I said, well, it's uncapped. So like, I can't, I can't move beyond that. You know, like that's where I'm stuck. And they just kept coming back. It's better. It's better. Ask Mark Cuban, ask Mark Cuban. like, <laughs> like, what? I you're a, you're a Dallas guy, right? So, I mean, I don't know oh, if I, man. and I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh. So, you know, that's the that's two ends of Mark Cuban. I don't think either of us are going to go ask him for for uh, crypto advice. Totally. Um. But uh, so how did you stumble upon Bitcoin? You know, I mean, everyone, I'm sure you told this story many times before, but, you know, what was the, the origins? I, I kind of want to hear like what that was like back then in the Wild West. Yeah, I mean it was it was truly the wild west back then. Like um
1: back in 2012 was when I well I actually found my Mt. Gox account. When I created it was like November 2011, but I don't remember buying Bitcoin till 2012. Um and I didn't buy that many. I think a lot of people think I have a gigantic stack and I'm like, dude, I was 20 like 25 years old and in Dallas yeah. earning, you know, earning earning like an okay salary. Like I didn't have I wish I was 10 years older because my discretionary income would have been, been so much higher. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, but, you know, so people think, some people think I've got like a giant stash. I'm like, dude, it isn't, it's nice, but it's not crazy big or anything like that. Yeah. You know? You're, you're not Satoshi, you know? <laughs> yeah. Some people think I'm like a billionaire. And I'm like, no, man, I'm not close to that at all. Um, if so, you held everything you
0: bought, maybe, but, you know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, if, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, m- yeah, almost no Bitcoiners hodled the whole way or hodled all their stash or bought as much as they could. I mean, Bitcoin is worth $10 at the time because that's what we all thought it was worth. Yeah. Right? Like, if everyone was like, oh, oh Bitcoin is going to be the next big thing in, 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 you know, a year or two, then the price would have skyrocketed as people bought it in expectation of that happening. It um, was a very uncertain world. Like, a lot of a lot of bad interfaces, a lot of bad UX. Um, A lot of confud. I mean, there wasn't great content like this podcast, another podcast, to where you could develop, you know, a deeper conviction in the asset. It was more of like, it was just your personal belief and you went on Bitcoin talk to learn about it. Um, (laughs) There there weren't even blogs. I mean, when I got into it, there was no CoinDesk or Cointelegraph or any of these media publications. There's no podcasts. Um,
0: There was- You literally had to have your own conviction and and just- Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, And so- you know, a lot of people look at that and they're like, well, that's crazy. You know, I, if I were back then, I, I would have bought as much as I could have. And I'm like, I don't think you would have, cause it was, it's pretty scary. I mean, even the 12 to 24 word backup, uh, that was BIP39 mm-hmm. where that came out, which that's a much easier way to store your, your uh, backup. So, um, you know, I think, yeah, it's been, it's been pretty wild to kind of see it progress and, um, you know, the, uh, Early space, like when I first got in, it was my first wallet was Bitcoin Core, and you know I'm like, why do I have to wait for it to sync? What is it syncing with? (laughs) Because you know I'm just learning about what blockchain technology is and how that works, and um, yeah, I mean, so the way I got into it, 2012 is when I started to get active, like kind of playing around with it. My buddy paid me back for a beer with a Casius coin, those shiny gold coins that you see in all the news articles. Yeah. Uh, that was a good way to bridge the physical, the digital world. Cause the world was still very physical back then. Oh yeah. Um, you know, this is almost well, yeah, eight, eight years ago. So that's a long time ago, eight, nine years ago. So, um, that was a good way to bridge it. So yeah, set up my Mt. Gox account, started to play around with it. Um, you know, again, just dabbling in it. Like I still didn't understand a lot about it. I still didn't really get some aspects of it, but what I did get was the was the 21 million hard cap. That, that was the brilliant breakthrough that I liked. I mm-hmm. was studying finance in undergrad during the 2008 financial crisis. And I realized none of my professors, no one on TV, and none of my books knew what the hell was going on. And I knew that what was broken was central banks and our monetary policy. So when Bitcoin came around, they're like, we have 21, uh, Bitcoin says, "You know, I've got 21 million Bitcoin and that's it. That was a huge, I, I saw that and I'm like, this is the, the gold 2.0 that we've been looking for. Like gold wasn't built for the digital world. Um, you know. Formerly folks like myself were, were, would be gold bugs, right? Mm-hmm. But when Bitcoin came around, I'm like, this is it. Um, and Silk Road at the time was a testament to its resiliency. I didn't know how the security model worked. I didn't know all these different aspects that, like I do now. I just know that it survived Silk Road. Like Silk Road could survive using Bitcoin as a payment rail and that it was working. And so I was like, whoa, okay love the monetary policy. It's working in practice. This is really cool. And um, from there, uh, I worked at a small investment firm in Dallas. They relocated me to San Francisco in January, 2013. I started to go to the Bitcoin meetups in San Francisco. Back at that time, it was
0: Brian and Fred from Coinbase, Jesse from...
1: I mean, I was going to say that's like
0: the heart of you know the heart of where crypto really started to take off totally yeah I mean and then trade Hill was the first
1: u.s exchange I was just hanging out with Jared Kenna my old buddy who ran trade Hill he's an old
0: old Bitcoin so old that most people don't remember him just because he did which one was he in um so I actually worked with and he's another guy from Pittsburgh that made the documentary uh Bitcoin the rise and rise of Bitcoin I think was he, he, yeah, hes He's in those older documentaries. He was also on the Bloomberg's like rich list of bitcoiners, like
1: Bloomberg, yeah. like rich list, like
0: Charlie Shrim, Eric, and and him and others. Did he have that that one like that kind of like hostel or whatever? And in- yeah, he he owned 20 Mission,
1: where the uh, meetup was was uh, the meetup occurred downstairs in the office. So okay. yeah, at this meetup, you know, there's only like a dozen of us. Yeah, Charlie Lee went there as well, and the price went from ten dollars to two sixty in March 2013. And all of a sudden, there's like 150 people in there, and um, there's v- there were VCs slinging out business cards, and in that moment, I'm like, when the price was rising, I was having trouble of checking the price of Bitcoin on my phone because there was no app that had real time market data. So that's when I built Zero Block, which was my first product in Bitcoin, and I sold that to Blockchain.com at the end of the year because Zero Block had grown from being um, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I built a product mm-hmm. to solve a problem for myself, which I did that in a really elegant manner, which meant that everyone else who was having the same problem found value in it. Later, I'd learned that this is how you build great products. But at the time, I didn't know anything about product management or design. Well, I, I particularly liked UX UI design, so I could design interfaces in Photoshop. So I, I designed it. Uh, but spec'd out the features. So I basically did competitor research, spec'd out the features, found the APIs, designed it and then had an iOS uh, engineer as my partner. And um, so I sort of stumbled and bumbled my way into tech. I built this app to solve a problem for myself. And then I learned growth tactics to increase its t- distribution. So we ranked number two for the Bitcoin, uh, for the keyword Bitcoin in the app store. And nice. I figured out a little hacky way to do that. So that
0: started my. You share that into, with it. Is that with that a hundred dollar secret? You get a you know sure. your, Use the promo code Dan Held. You get the, the secret. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they closed the loophole a little while a while ago, but the title in the App Store you used to be allowed to have two hundred and fifty five characters in your title, which was nuts because the title Whoa. is truncated after sixty characters. Yeah, so you could just list keywords on and on and on. <laughs> Words <afterwards. laughs> in the title metadata, uh, Apple's algorithm would rank that. Um, very highly so they would parse through the title string find those keywords and then weight you in the search results for those keywords highly so no that's wild yeah so that was kind of a fun little loophole they they closed that a while back but um, that started my my path down uh, marketing and, and product so yeah I'm not sure how deep we want to go into my, my whole journey but that was the beginning that's how I got started
0: well I was gonna say like you know because if you start in finance, but now you're in tech and I mean, you know, it's, it's, you're in, you're in both finance and tech right now. So uh, it is interesting how that, but I think that, you know, a lot of people that are trying to come up with stuff, they don't realize that that some of the best products come from trying to solve a solution for yourself. You know, like I want something better. I want this to work better. So I'll make that. And then um, like, that's actually one of the things, I mean, ours isn't, you know, some huge, big thing or whatever but i was sick of uh having to deal with all the royalty payments and everything for filmmakers and i was like i wish there was a way it was just like automated and like they could do it themselves like it it would all go to their bank accounts on their own and that's what we're in the process of like finalizing like putting the finishing touches on so it's like i was like oh my god this is probably going to be like you know huge and like a lot of people are going to to use this and it's literally because i was sick of like having to do like monthly and quarterly accounting um So, I mean, we'll see, you know, (laughs) and if, if it literally just helps our business, then that's fine. But, um, but yeah, so, um, okay. So I have to ask then, so what, what was his name again? Was it Jared? Jared Kenna. Yeah. Jared Kenna. Okay. So he's no longer into Bitcoin, right? He's been out for kind of a while. And I think he's, you know, he's an old guy he's not an old guy,
1: but he's an old, old Bitcoiner who's kind of, he misses the old days, I think
0: from a long time ago. So he, um, so he's not out on Bitcoin as the con- on the concept, but just not floating around in the the Bitcoin world anymore. Yeah, that, and I think he also liked the payments narrative back in the day. Um, so I think he's, okay, you
1: now he feels like Bitcoin's like a little off of that in that regard. I mean, obviously, him and I differ on that, but we're still buddies despite it. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, yeah, he's you know it, it's hard to last this long in Bitcoin. Like, yeah, a lot of people were scammers back in the day, almost. I'd say over 50% of people in the space were scammers back in 2013. Um, just like l- legit scamming. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, who survived, who survived that long? Like the crypto years are like dog years. I mean, it's forever, right? Like, I mean, to have your net worth go up exponentially and drop 80% three times because 2013 had two, two uh, bubbles, <laughs> you know, that that's, that's a lot. Um It's a lot to go through. And then like trying to build a crypto company, like a Bitcoin company during these cycles is insane. I mean, Kraken, we're going through this right now, you know, during the bear market is the optimal time to build, but you don't know when the bear market's going to end. Now during the bull run, you want to capture as much of that organic upswelling of demand as possible. I think we've done a great job at doing that, but there's always this anxiety of like, are we capturing as much of that as we can? And so that's where all of us are burning the midnight oil, just trying to figure out how do we scale? How do we, how do we more efficiently bring people into the product? Um, How do we enable better experiences? So it's, it's a period of like, okay, let's survive the winter and while building. And then during the bull run, it's also like, cool. How do we capture as much of this as possible? And it's, it's a rush. It's an exciting rush, but it's also a little bit intense. It's very intense at the same time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's, um, I mean, for the short amount of time that I've been focusing on it, I'm like, oh my God, like, how I, like, I, I just want to, ha- I want to hang on. I don't want to be the Roger Ver and I don't want to, you know, like at some point just like abandon and, and get out. Um, and, uh, but uh, so what, you know, you've seen that. Um, what do you think causes that? Cause I mean, I think, you know, I get what they got. I think a lot of them got caught up in the payments narrative and, you know, they wanted to basically be like a, Shittier PayPal, and um, and it's like I get that, but then they also on like a philosophical end. I I said the guy Swan. I was like, it's kind of like they, they all, like serve their purpose. You know what I mean? Like they all brought Bitcoin to a certain point. Um, and you know, for Roger, for example, it was never going to be anything other than payments for him. You know, like that was. If you look back at everything he talked about, it really was banking the unbanked, all that kind of stuff. Um. Do you see like anybody coming back eventually or, uh, I mean, we had the, there was the big split and Bitcoin cash became a thing. So, I mean, you've lived through all that. You knew them from the beginning and now you're, you're still here in the crypto world. What's it take to stay in the crypto world and, and what are the chances of any of them coming back?
1: Yeah. So I, I always believe in reconciliation. So it'd be awesome if some of them came back, apologized and said I was wrong. Um, mm-hmm. I doubt that any of them have the maturity to do that. I, I, I don't know of almost any of them who've done that. Um, They kind of just die on that hill, which Mm -hmm. is disappointing that their mental models are that rigid to where like, even in the overwhelming show that they were (laughs) in the, even in the overwhelming display of both market pricing and uh, user metrics and the overall engagement in the space, pointing that to to the Bitcoin use case, being the one that won, it's very disappointing to see them be so rigid. Um, Again, I believe in reconciliation. So if they apologized and came back, I would welcome them. So, I think that's really cool, but that's just me. And I'm no one, no one's part of Bitcoin's official team. So, that's just my personal feeling. You'd have to, who knows if that's worth it for them to engage with Bitcoiners and coming back. Yeah. But it's very disappointing to see none of them apologize for it. Um, because I think that that's the first step in reconciliation. You have to apologize and then, and then we can move forward from there. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Nick Carter asked me this question as well, which I thought was a really good one. And you, you and him are the only two people who've ever asked me of like, how do you stay on the right side of history? Like, how do you know yeah. if
0: your version of Bitcoin is You're going to have to, be to the talk one. to Nick for me? Because I keep trying to entice him into an interview by calling him like a, an enemy of the world, and you know he's going to take us like, take us all down. And <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my
1: best. Well, yeah. Nick, you got you to come on the podcast sometime. <laughs> so. um You know, Nick asked me this question of like, how do you know you're gonna be on the right side of history every time? Mm -hmm. I just apply a product perspective. So products solve a problem, just like protocols solve a problem. And for me, it was always highly intuitive what Bitcoin was useful for. I had seen us try the payments narrative. Trust me, we tried it. Mm -hmm. People weren't sticking around and using it. Later, as I developed my product skills, I'd realized: wait, we don't have protocol or product market fit here with payments. It's harder to use slower and more expensive than traditional methods. So what we're doing is trying to shoehorn a bunch of people into an idea that we think is solving a problem, but it's not solving a problem. Bitcoin's problem that it's solving is storing value. And that's where, the, that's where we see perfect narrative and pro, a protocol market fit right now. The world is waking up to Bitcoin as a great store of value. And that's why we hit a trillion dollar market cap. Um, so through empirical data, so seeing how Bitcoin and products built on Bitcoin got engagement during 2013 through 2016, that largely informed my decision-making on like, this, did the payments narrative make sense? Then you've also got the technical implementations that are pretty easy to grok. You can't keep scaling the block size for forever. They've got to have layered scaling. So, you know, from a very primitive technical mindset that, that made a lot of sense, they couldn't scale fully on layer one from a from technical aspect because it decreases decentralization, uh, increases decentralization of both a uh, number of nodes running and um, miners because miners, as the blocks get larger, there's an issue with orphan blocks. So some of these technical limitations were obvious as well. So you've got obvious pro- protocol market fit and obvious technical market fit. I think with those two, I feel like I'm going to be on the right side of history for, I should be for all of Bitcoin's existence. I, if the protocol is effectively solving a problem for a majority of its customers, which are us all holding it, then I don't really see how I could be in the wrong if I'm adequately looking at why it's valuable for people. Ultimately, the mm-hmm. protocol is a collection of all of us who engage with it, and if all of us find value in it doing something, then that should be the direction forward.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I think that's the really what they missed was the store of value too. You know, like that being so important. Um and well, it, it it like. They weren't product yeah. people.
1: They weren't product people because if they were product people, they would look at any metric and they go, wait mm-hmm. a second, we're not finding an engagement with people using it as an everyday PayPal. They would go, mm-hmm. people are using it to store value. And so it required a complete absence of product thinking to go, I don't care about what my customers think. I don't care what the customers of the Bitcoin protocol think. I care what my version is. And that's mm-hmm. antithetical to good product development. That is that is a terrible way to approach it. It's like me coming up with a product and then telling people you should like this. And they're like, well, you never talked to me about what I want from it. And I, I use it. I use something else. Cause that solves a problem for me. And I'm like, no, you should use mine, my product, because I think it's solving your problem. So people build products. And, and by the way, my content works the same in the same function. I write for my audience. I don't write for me. Mm-hmm. I write for what my audience likes. And for me just to go be like, screw my audience. I'm just going to write whatever is antithetical to like creating good engagement. Same with a product. Like if I had shipped a zero block, my first app and I didn't care what users thought about it, then it wouldn't have solved their problem. And then it wouldn't have been empathetic towards their needs. So yeah, it just demonstrates to me very poor product thinking, um, which Mm -hmm. isn't like a common trait that people have, but given that a lot of these folks work in tech, I find it very surprising. Um, if, very, very concerning that, you know, if you worked in tech and you were on that side of the narrative path, like that meant that you really didn't rock product very well.
0: Yeah. So speak about that a little bit with, uh, I'll give you a, a chance to, to shill Kraken, but I mean, I'm, I'm curious with, you know, growing product in this crypto world, cause there's a lot of products coming out there and there's probably, hopefully, you know, people listening to this podcast that, that have ideas and solutions to things that we're looking to, to solve. Um, you know, and, and they want to grow products. You know, you see Jack Mallers is coming out with, with, um, you know, lightning with a strike. And um, I mean, we have the fold card, we have a bunch of products that are coming on. Um, what's it like to build it in such a primitive, build products in such a primitive, um, Wild West, I guess, for lack of a better term. You know, what I mean, like, whereas if you're gonna build products in, like, you know, you want to sell food in the grocery store, you know, it's like, okay, you do this, you package it this way, da 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 da. You do the Lori Grenier approach, and she'll tell you how to, you know, sell it on QVC or whatever. um Well, but this is a completely different ball game because nobody's ever stepped foot in this landscape before. So, what's it like?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is where I've got so much respect for Jesse and how he's built Kraken um, to survive this long, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and the exchange space was so crowded too. The fact that Kraken stood out, you know, has great liquidity, has, you know, one of the top, it's one of the top exchanges in the world. That's testament to Jesse and his process there. So, you know, I think that's really inspirational in that regard. And also Jesse stuck to his principles. Jesse says mm-hmm. what he likes about things and, I, and he also lets me speak up pretty freely about things. So I think that's really cool. Um, even if he doesn't agree with me 100%. Um, He's mm-hmm. got his own opinion on things. Um, so one, you know, crypto companies too, there's so many distracting narratives, right? Like if you were in the space from 14 and 15 and you're in the cold Bitcoin winter, blockchain, not Bitcoin, do you pivot your whole strategy to blockchain, not Bitcoin or not? Because then in 16 and 17, the price starts to run up, but the blockchain, not Bitcoin projects all died and faded away you know, and then in 16 and 17, it was ICOs. Do you gear your whole, whatever product you're building or service you have, do you, you know, do you uh, help out these customers? Because then, you know, the ICO upswell happened and then faded away. So, you know, it's really difficult. Like now there's like a lot of DeFi sort of projects, the narratives in crypto come and go so quickly. It's really hard to build a product around that, right? Like let's say you're not a Bitcoin maximalist. You're just, you're just a, you know, you, you, you're kind of agnostic and you're like, I'm just going to build a business to solve problems. You know, you look at these, these narrative waves and I'm like, well, I don't know how you stay ahead of that. Cause you got to go build a team. You got to raise money. That's going to take months. You know, NFTs are already kind of, <laughs> kind of coming yeah. and going. Right. Um, and so it's really, really tricky to make sure you have the right, you're building and you've built it before the narrative hit. Like you got to build it while the narrative is building. Um, that's where I think, like a lot of the core, the core companies that made all the value and then crude all the value over time, were exchanges, because the exchanges mm-hmm. are sort of narrative agnostic. They keep listing crypto assets that would be like ICOs or NFTs or whatever you'd like that, or DeFi products that, or DeFi protocols that are, you know, essentially narrative narrative market fit. But even if that fades, they still have a core trading volume with fiat to bitcoin and and bitcoin to fiat right that it will always exist Mm -hmm. so the exchange businesses were the only ones i think that will accrue like huge long-term value now certainly wallets were also a consideration that they might accrue a lot of value through time ultimately those wallets make money through trading Mm -hmm. those wallet providers either do like asset swapping for them um you know like exodus has or they have some sort of like lending program where like they, they send, you can send your coins from your self-custodied wallet to a lending service and they kind of have like a nice GUI on it and they take a cut. So basically referral fees are how wallets make, make money. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, there's not a lot of crypto businesses that, that make sense long-term. And I've seen so many fail too. I mean, the 2015 winter was so harsh. And what really sucked about it is a lot of Bitcoiners put all their money into their into their company and then the mm. company failed. Mm. It was the br- brutalist winter, awful. Um, so I think uh, you know it's really hard to run a crypto business, it's hard to survive this long, and it requires like really, really laser focus on how do you survive the winters, how do you grow in the summers, and you know companies like Uber don't have this problem. Like <laughs> the mm-hmm. demand for Uber steadily climbed over you know, as they were gaining adoption worldwide. It didn't go hundred X and then down eighty mm-hmm. you percent. Know, so like the, the planning process there was t- totally different. So yeah, I think like some of the critical elements to build in Bitcoin or build in crypto would be resiliency, survival. I think that's the number one thing I figured out. The folks at Boost VC, they're um, they have a title. They have a saying that says, uh, "Be be the cockroach, like be unkillable." Mm-hmm. Um, that alone, I think, is like fifty percent of a company's success. Just surviving. A lot of people, when they start a company, they look at, how are my competitors doing? How am I doing relative to my competitors? And they get caught up with this race of like, oh, maybe I should raise as much money as them or we're not building this feature or that. Slow and steady truly wins the race. I've seen it over nine years in Bitcoin. It's it's crazy to see because at first, you know, I heard this advice from like big Silicon Valley VCs and, and operators before. And until I saw it happen firsthand, I'm like, Truly slow and steady, just slow and steady building, solving a problem. It it, it sounds easy, but um, there's so many distractions to go chase what's hot, especially when VC money follows what's hot. So Mm -hmm. if you want VC money, you got to go, go after whatever is hot and and cool at the time. But then by the time you chase that in crypto, it might be gone. So it's one of them. I would say it's probably the hardest landscape in the world or industry in the world to go build a business is crypto.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean that's how you know with with Kraken and the other exchanges. I mean why you guys are able to because you can be a Bitcoin maximalist but still sell you know other other uh, cryptos. Uh, with you you know being part of an exchange, um, do you you know endorse Ethereum? I mean, what's your thoughts on Bitcoin versus Ethereum? You know, are, are you are you truly a maximal, maximalist? Or I, I've I've heard you, a couple different versions of you know. People ask, so you know, I, I'm curious. Yeah. yeah. So look, at the heart of it, I'm libertarian, and
1: so is Jesse, and I think that's where Jesse comes from. I, I don't want to speak too much on his behalf, mm-hmm. but that's where I admire his libertarian and free thinking sort of principles. You know, early crypto OGs were very libertarian focused, so that's where I feel like he says what he what he feels about certain things, and he also encourages others to as well at the company, which uh, which allows us to have a very open dialogue internally. Um, when I work at Kraken, I'm agnostic. Of course, I have to be. I have to mm-hmm. put on the Kraken hat. Kraken's paying me to um, do marketing uh, for Kraken, so obviously, mm-hmm. I'm in that regard. I have to play that hat. Um, and from my libertarian roots, people are free to buy whatever they like. Um, mm-hmm. The only thing I've recommended people buy from myself is Bitcoin. So that mm-hmm. that doesn't change at all. Um, But people are free to buy whatever they like. And I think Kraken very much feels that that's the ethos of they're a neutral exchange, that you should be able to buy whatever you want, and they don't have an opinion on it. Um, This is my personal opinion, right? My personal Mm -hmm. opinion is I like Bitcoin. Yeah, that hasn't changed. And it's cool because at Kraken, there's a lot of of Bitcoin maximalists, and there's also a lot of Ethereum folks too. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't think that's really led to any clashes. It just led to both assets being... I think respected and built around in a very, um, uh, very empathetic manner. So, the way that I think about it for Kraken, Bitcoin at Kraken, and I'm hoping that this becomes a trend at other exchanges. Um, you know, I work in the marketing team, so I'm not going and building new features in the app or anything like that. But mm-hmm. there, there are discussions that I'm a part of and things we're working on, like for example, Lightning with Pierre Rochard. Like mm-hmm. Pierre is integrating Lightning at Kraken, and he's thinking about how to make Kraken. Work more intimately with Bitcoin's protocol uh, via across a lot of different ideas. So I think that's really cool. Every company should have, every exchange should have a, a Bitcoin advocate internally that works inside product to help think through how, how do we work with the Bitcoin protocol elegantly. And the way I think about it too is that, you know, Bitcoin is the number one purchased asset at Kraken and, and on Coinbase and other exchanges. It should be a first class citizen. This isn't a Bitcoin maximalist. Perspective. This is a business perspective of it is a number one asset purchased and held by your traders. Making sure that the ability to find and buy or sell Bitcoin is easy, and that it is regarded and you know in the GUI in a way that's um, you know respecting that that first class status. I think makes a ton of sense. Um, you know, versus just making it like every other asset on the platform. I think you know that could come across as neutral, but also I think a little bit of a disservice to your customers because the customers. Most of them buy this one, so
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know I, I think that's the way that exchanges should approach working with Bitcoin. Is that it's a first-class citizen asset? It's the number one asset purchased. Even if you had, you're not a Bitcoin Max, most at all, this is how you think about it from a product perspective: is just treated as a first-class citizen. So, you know, I, I try to advocate for that anywhere I can. You know, again, I don't have, I'm, I'm not leading product or anything like that. I don't have a ton of influence on what gets built. But, you know, I work with Pierre to help him out on his lightning initiatives. Um, there's other initiatives as well that I try to push on. There's some things that I can't mention, but are really exciting that I think a lot of Bitcoiners would like to see in terms of, again, us being empathetic with people buying Bitcoin is good for Kraken because we have more trading volume. Yeah. So, um, you know, being uh, having Kraken be business oriented and being a Bitcoin maximalist aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Um mm-hmm. And so Kraken, while it's agnostic across all crypto assets for folks like us, we can make Bitcoin a first class citizen, which makes Kraken more money, which makes uh, everyone happy. So, yeah, again, you know, I'm not speaking like I'm not speaking on behalf of like what we're going to go build. Um, This is just how I personally view how development should work at a crypto exchange uh, with Mm -hmm. Bitcoin. This is my personal view. And I, I try to push wherever I can. Like I said, with Pierre. Uh, just to make us, you know, make make our product work a little bit more elegantly with the Bitcoin protocol, or you know, make it easier to buy Bitcoin.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. So changing gears a little bit, um, one of the things, and people that listen to this, they they're probably gonna be sick. I brought it up probably like three times before, but um, but I had this theory. I was talking to somebody. They said, "Who's Satoshi?" you know, and I mentioned to you the documentary Searching for Satoshi, which I'm not trying to dox him. That's uh, Satoshi, if you're listening, I'm not trying to dox you. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I somebody said, like, well, if it's Craig Wright, and that's how I initially said, I said, it's more likely that he's from the future than it's Craig Wright. Um, and, and I, then I, like, I <laughs> so then I started thinking about that more. And like, I, I sort of, developed the theory that there's a 1% chance that it, he's from the future because of the timing and how everything has played out. And, and for example, like um, I was listening, I mean, I would heard it before, but I was listening to it was you and um, Peter McCormick uh, with, you know, it was before I actually bought. So it was part of my, you know, making that ladder shorter. I think it was back in like 2018, you were on a show. I'm sure you've been on multiple times, but um uh, but you guys talked about the immaculate conception of Bitcoin. And, um, and so whenever I wanted to ask, I was like, I'm going to ask him about that. Cause like the timing, I remember you saying the timing and I think about that with the theory of it being like the, from the future, like the timing is just so incredible, but, um, but it is really eerie. I encourage you to go back and, and listeners to go back and listen to that interview. Cause uh, I did in, in the last week and the stuff that you guys lay out about what, could happen and what would accelerate Bitcoin. It like all happened. You know what I mean? Oh, like,
1: cool. I, I got to go listen to that episode again.
0: Yeah. It's, it's like really crazy. Like, you know, it's talking about like, um, you know, where the, how the government's going to go, you know, fiat, all that kind of stuff. And it was just like, you guys were talking on it. Like, you know, yeah. At 2018 it was, you know, it was kind of like a, you know, bear market and just, you know, going sideways. And, um, you know you're speculating like oh you know we'll, we'll see if there's you know big kinds of things going down in the future and I'm like oh my god they have no idea they have no idea what's going to happen um so so yeah so expand on that that bitcoin immaculate conception thought um because because I obviously think that's an awesome you know that the timing couldn't have been better yeah so I wrote a series called planting
1: bitcoin bitcoin's origin story so that satoshi's brilliance wasn't just in the genetic selection of the species of money that he created but it was also the season, the soil, and the gardening techniques that allowed this new money to, to thrive and survive. Um, Satoshi had a go-to-market strategy. What He didn't just YOLO create Bitcoin and like throw it out there and the market received it. He carefully crafted the way that he brought this product, this protocol to the market. Um, and actually came to this realization with Jill and Meltem, Jill Carlson and Meltem, uh, Jim Morris, uh, on our trip to Tahoe back in 20, 2018. Um where we went skiing and on the car ride back, we're just jamming on. Yeah. Like it was so crazy on the timing, you know, this, this was wild. And Jill was like, yeah, this is basically, you know, Satoshi had a go to market strategy. And I'm like, yeah, he did. Um, by the way, I choose he because he chose he and his peer to peer foundation yeah. profile pronoun. So, um, and when I dug into it, you know, I, I didn't know a lot of this information myself. A lot of, I think a lot of people think I've known this about Bitcoin for a long time, but I, actually I keep discovering new things like the security model and distribution of Bitcoin and this, the go-to-market strategy. All of this, you know, I've learned the last couple of years have been really fascinating for me because I've, I've, I went further down the rabbit hole. It was a beautiful rabbit hole. So I shared the, the, the results I'm finding and that's where people like the content. So the inception of Bitcoin was really interesting because Satoshi had been working on it for a year and a half before he published it on the cryptographer mailing list, the mailing list that the cypherpunks read. Cypherpunks were a bunch of really geeky, slash, you know, uh, Hayekian finance types who believed that uh, encryption would allow for private communication, but also like private money. And Satoshi crafted the Bitcoin white paper. And what's interesting with the timeline here is that he builds, he Bit- starts to work on Bitcoin code wise a year and a half before this moment, which the moment was October 31st, 2008. Then in August 2008, he registers Bitcoin.org. So like he's planning and methodically making steps uh, to launch Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, then he also starts to write the white paper, but then waits about a month. And what's interesting is when he planted Bitcoin, October 31st, 2008, this was peak moment of despair. In fact, if you search financial crisis, the number the search volume peaks in October 2008, mm-hmm. um, that was the peak moment of despair. And also October 31st is a very interesting date. So we certainly know that Satoshi probably didn't choose the year. Maybe he, maybe he did, but he likely had it ready, and a little bit of, this, little bit of the timing was coincidental. But we certainly know that he probably picked the day mm-hmm. for sure, because the day to day doesn't matter, and the month probably as well. Um, if you had been working on it years or a year and a half, waiting mm-hmm. one more month for a special date would have been no big deal. And him registering Bitcoin.org and working on the white paper and finishing it before then. Strongly indicate that he was waiting. October thirty first is an interesting date um, because one, it stands for Halloween. Now, Halloween's origins are through, and I keep mispronouncing this. It's Samhain, S A M H I A N. Now, I think some uh, Irish folks corrected me and said it's pronounced differently. But for most Americans who are listening to this, that's how you. I'm basically mm-hmm. pronouncing it as I would spell it. It's the ancient ritual behind the end of the summer and the beginning of the fall and winter, and what it represented were the end of something old and the beginning of something new, and that's what Bitcoin represents: is the end of the old system, and the beginning of a new one, um, and the, the death of the old system, and the beginning of a new one. Mm-hmm. So it's you know that date was really interesting, but also October thirty first is when Martin Luther nailed um, I forget the number of theses onto the church door. Uh, yep. You know, kind of representing this freedom from the Catholic Church. So, you know, it seems very coincidental that you know Satoshi's not a big fan of like he's not just a fan of Halloween or something. It's like yeah, ritual, yeah, right? like ev- with everything Satoshi did, it was very purposeful, very slow, perfect, perf- purposeful, methodical. And so, I find it unlikely that this was a random date. Um, it could have been, but it very much lines up with other interesting quirks that Satoshi did, like. Um, his birthday, his birthday was the, um, I forget, uh, the, it's, it's like the month and day or the day that gold was banned in the year is when gold was brought back. And so that's oh. the first that he chose in his peer to peer foundation profile. Nice. So little quirks, like little, little, uh, Easter eggs, if you will. I find it very improbable that all of these are like very libertarian style dates and that they all, <laughs> like yeah. that these were chosen by random. I find that to be more unlikely than this was all intentional. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, Satoshi sees the world going um, and, and, and thinks, you know, how do we, how do I solve this? So we've been working on it for a while, launches it in 2008, you know, waits four months and then publishes the code. People forget that the white paper didn't contain the operating Any Bitcoin the code, code yeah. that came in, came in January. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was really interesting to see his planning and, and how he launched it there. And then he launched his peer-to-peer foundation profile. That's when he, that's when he started to, uh, that was his first comment after the white paper had been published. But he publishes the white paper to the only group that would have cared. These are a bunch of geeks who geek out on this stuff. They'd all been looking for a, a cryptocurrency for a long time. Some of them had even tried before. Hal Finney, Nick Szabo, mm-hmm. uh, Wei Dai, um, all of these folks had tried to build their own cryptocurrency, but those cryptocurrencies died on the operating table. Satoshi took snippets of that code, the genetic code of all these other monies, Frankenstein it together and it worked. He created the first cryptocurrency that worked. People forget that many had been tried before and these folks hang out in the cryptographer mailing list. So he publishes the white paper as, yo, this is my marketing material. Hey, by the way, I built this thing called Bitcoin and he published it to the only group that would care. If you put it Mm -hmm. on CNN, literally no one would have cared. They would have been like, okay, I have no idea what this means. And that's why Satoshi uses the word like cash in the white paper title, because that's all of what the cypherpunks, that, that's their common lingo for a digital currency was cash because it represents privacy and a one-way payment. You can't reverse the payment. So that's where, you know, when people take the word cash in the white paper title and they go, oh, that meant money in your pocket, that's that's dishonest to, mm-hmm. to make that interpretation because that's not how Satoshi's referencing it, given the context, given the content, He's trying to resonate. Look, he he can't wax poetically on monetary theory with the cypherpunks. They weren't into that as much. Some of them were, but if he had waxed too poetically about the 21 million hard cap in there, folks would have, which by the way, like the white paper doesn't even mention the 21 million hard cap that came in the implementation later. Mm -hmm. Um, And as Satoshi says, he goes, the functional details are not included in the white paper, Yeah, but the source code is coming soon. So you know, the, the, the white paper is a marketing material for the cypherpunks to get them excited. Then he publishes the code, which has all the operational components and the 21 million hard cap and everything else. And then he Satoshi waxes on a little bit about why he chose that later down the road. Um, but it was really interesting. So his, you know, his go-to-market message, all of these Bitcoin, all of these um cypherpunks resonated with this message, started to help him work on it. And then, you know, later down the road, like Satoshi, you know, all of this was so perfectly timed and Satoshi, you know, published at the right time, made the right decisions with the core parameters. I mean, the core parameters of Bitcoin's protocol are insane, right? Like the hard cap was a genius move. The issuance schedule, you know, with the halvings. Oh yeah. Like that could have been continuous. And now I know that's a little bit harder technically, but it could have been continuous issuance. It could have been a different issuance curve, right? Like why Mm -hmm. it could have been a much longer arc. Of issuance, instead, most of the bitcoins are issued in the first decade. Or basically, eighty-five percent have already been issued in the first decade.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, so that that was those were interesting design parameters that uh, Satoshi you know talks a little bit about, or that like the long-term security is of the Bitcoin blockchain is through uh, transaction fees replacing the subsidy over time. The newly minted bitcoins in the Bitcoin block, all of these Satoshi thought through, and, and a very very. Very far out level. And then Satoshi also talks about how it might gain adoption, where he goes, People will hear about it or become more aware of it due to the increase in price. As the price increases, people become more aware of it and then they buy in anticipation of the price going higher. You're describing FOMO. Mm -hmm. And Satoshi hypothesized that's how Bitcoin would gain adoption, amongst other methods, before Bitcoin is even worth a penny. So it's really brilliant to see all of Satoshi's thought process through time of like, how does Bitcoin develop and grow? long after he was gone. But yeah, certainly some of, the, some of the parameters, like the design parameters, you're like, he got it perfectly right, which is nuts. I mean, it, it's almost, yeah, that's where the future time traveler story almost makes sense because you're like, how, how is this possible mm-hmm. that he could do that?
0: I know. I mean, like with the pandemic and the government's just all of a sudden turning on, you know, their, their money printers, it's like, wow, like, you know, if he had known that like you know 10 years into into bitcoin's existence that uh the government would just start printing money like crazy like well maybe he didn't i don't know like i mean it's just it's another thing where you're like wow that timing is incredible you he, know he knew, and,
1: lot, he knew a lot about how humans operate like what i described before is that fomo viral loop that drew new people into bitcoin he knew that humans were innately greedy but he could harness mm-hmm. that greed for good and then, you know, uh, in his first pub his first published words after the white paper, he starts with the history is full of breaches of trust by central banks, that they won't print more money and that banks have all your money in the bank and that they won't that they'll be able to fulfill their liability to you, aka give you your deposit back. And so Satoshi very much felt like this was a problem to solve of solving the problem of trust with the financial system. And you know, he didn't really immense words around why he was doing this. I mean, he wants to undermine and disrupt the entire thing. And I think what he understood was just human nature. Politicians will always print more money. He, he had seen it. Through, he goes, history is full of this. So I think he probably projected it into the future and went, well, why won't this continue to happen? Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think I think it was very, a very, very good he, Satoshi isn't just an engineer. And I think that's what a lot of people don't get. He was a marketer he understood game theory. He understood um, innately how humans work and think. Uh, also, he was a great storyteller. Like his white paper entranced that audience, and also his, the rest of his materials were great. So I think it's um, you know, Satoshi is this polymath who had a lot of different disciplines, um, a lot of knowledge across different sectors. Uh, yeah, economics as well. Like a mm-hmm. deep, deep thinking of economics, but also to choose a twenty-one million hard cap was a very controversial design decision. Um, what was the motivation behind that is a specific reason for 21 million? Satoshi has a couple quotes on why a fixed amount, uh, 21 I think is more of a computer notation combined with, if you break it down into Satoshi's, it represented all the value in the world um, mm. at the time, if like a Satoshi was a dollar. So some people think that's why you chose 21 million. Some think it's more of a computer notation implementation because 21 uh, is like an easier way to calculate certain things. Um he does have two quotes on why he chose a fixed amount, uh, which mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the quotes are kind of funny because I think he's being sarcastic in them. Um, this, this is an interpretation, but he goes, you know, he goes, I don't know the way that the protocol can value things in the real world. If we could trust someone to value <laughs> things in the real world or trust someone with the monetary policy, then maybe we could do that. But he's like, I haven't implemented that for Bitcoin though. So yeah, I think he's...
0: Making yeah, fun like, of the fact that it's not possible.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, the whole, his first publication, his first words that he wrote right after the white paper, were, it's trust is required to make the whole system work. And so the fact that he's saying like, yeah, if we could trust someone, I think is obviously like a joke. He must be joking of like, sure, we could add inflation in here, a proper rate of inflation, but I don't know how to calculate that because we'd have to trust someone. And that's mm-hmm. the whole point. That's what's so beautiful about Bitcoin's monetary policy is that it removes that political and external attack vector of an inflation rate. What is a proper rate of inflation? No one knows. It's impossible to calculate. No one knows what it should be. And that would always be a political attack vector to undermine confidence in Bitcoin. By removing an inflation rate, there's no discussion around what Bitcoin's inflation rate should be. And Bitcoin becomes that fixed you know, metric in the world of value. And then the world and the economy reorient around it. Is a brilliant idea. Um, very, very controversial. I mean, a lot of people would hate on Bitcoin in the early days because it's like it doesn't have an inflation rate. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't have inflation plus the 21 million issuance. I thought it was the most genius. I think, I think like Satoshi in time will, will receive an award in economics for that theory of like, mm-hmm. what, how about a 21 million hard cap? It's a genius way to do it. Also for planning in the economy, now everyone has a standard unit of measurement. Um, before you had a think about like how do you measure a home when the ruler is is is, is moving up and down? Mm-hmm. You know, with Bitcoin, you've got a fixed ruler for the economy. For every every entrepreneurial outcome, entrepreneurial outcome, you'd have a fixed like Bitcoin will not change, so you can plan everything in the economy much more efficiently because it's uh, so so cl- like at any given moment, I you know exactly what percentage of Bitcoin I own, you know, mm-hmm. and so that allows for more precise measurements of everything. So yeah, Satoshi was—it was incredible. These d- decisions that he made. Same with the issuance schedule. I think the issuance schedule is like a very under-discussed, um, underdiscussed discussed uh, metric. So like, mm-hmm. why 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 four year havings? Why not ten? Why not two? Mm-hmm. You know, and Satoshi doesn't really talk about it. So
0: we're, he doesn't we're really. It, it leaves as a mystery. Although I think one yeah. of the most brilliant things was the difficulty adjustment. Yeah. With with like it's just like because at first you're like, okay, yeah, you set the schedule and you're like, well, you you can't guarantee that the schedule stays the same unless you have the difficulty adjustment.
1: And it's so primitive and simple. That's what's beautiful about Bitcoin is the simplicity in it. Yeah. Um, Add a zero
0: and it, you
1: know, makes it more difficult. Totally. Totally. And um, yeah, I mean, that's where like the issuance curve I think is kind of interesting. I hypothesize that Satoshi wanted to see if Bitcoin was going to work in his lifetime. And so he figured four-year halvings, you know, the next decade or two, it'll either work or it won't. Mm-hmm. But that kind of like pushed because everyone can see the future halvings and they know that Bitcoin has become more and more scarce, That might anticipate they might anticipate that and buy ahead of that in time. Whereas if the curve was longer, Satoshi might be a very old man by the time Bitcoin succeeds. So I think that, I mean, Satoshi must have been in, in his 40s or 50s. I mean, he could have been younger, but I, I doubt it. Mm -hmm. Um, Just based on the accumulated knowledge of this person, like the accumulated knowledge they had, they must've, well, who knows, but I would, you know, at a minimum, it's going to be 30, you know, and then probably more like 40, 50, probably more like 50. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at the time when they made it, and so, you know, at the time when he made it, so add another 10 years or another 12 years, then add another, you know, we're talking about this person might be in their 60s, 70s. And um, I think that's why that Satoshi selected the four-year halvings. Also, we allow four years for a president to make action happen. Four years is a good amount of time to fundraise, build. And if Satoshi hypothesized that these halvings might incur speculative cycles, and these speculative cycles would bring in more awareness and adoption, that the development of the protocol and the development of companies building on the protocol, four years is a nice amount of time to give to go build. Into mm-hmm. higher fundraise, build, versus two years, which would be really intense. Oh, that'd you be know, crazy. It'd be like, yeah, it'd be kind of crazier every year, right? And then 10 would be too long, or eight years might be too long, or, or, or interest fades away, and then no one talks about it. And, and you know, it's a network effect. So if the network effect starts to dissipate really rapidly, mm-hmm. then it could have just kind of died a slow, quiet death. So you know, he doesn't give a lot of insight, or almost any insight, into the issuance schedule, but in terms of why he made those choices for the four year cycles or the four year havings but i would hypothesize though those would be my, that would be my hypothesis as to why
0: um so i got to ask you then cuz i think it was one of the questions that we we got about the the super cycle and you know i read your your piece on the the super cycle um you know so what are the indicators that 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 cycle starts to, you know, with the having cycles and everything dies down and then goes back up. Um, what are the indicators to you that that is going away? And, and do you think we're still in it?
1: Yeah, great question. And a lot of people think I just wrote about it recently. I actually mentioned it back in 2019, October, 2019, oh, well. is when I first mentioned the super cycle um, in a podcast. Basically my premise at the time, and this is still the premise is that in the event, and at that time, I speculated that 2020, 2021, there would be a normal recession. Now, mm-hmm. COVID hit at the same time, you know, where I'm like, look, we're kind of overdue for a recession. If that happens, then Bitcoin as a lifeboat and as an antidote to poor central banking policy should really shine in this moment. So, COVID was that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so, no. when COVID hit, yeah, I mean, people were like, well, wow, my government's printing trillions of dollars well, how do I protect myself against that? Bitcoin is a perfect example of what to do. Now, Bitcoin's value prop before was always there. It just wasn't so apparent. And that's what the super cycle is about is that all of Bitcoin's previous market cycles have been during a bull run and during um, like a macro bull run in the mainstream markets. So folks mm-hmm. were like, oh, Bitcoin, that's a fun speculative instrument, but I don't really like, need it. Well, now they need it. People are buying seats on the lifeboat and this isn't a drill. This isn't like, oh, I might need this lifeboat in the future. Like, no, I need the lifeboat right now. The the Titanic
0: has hit the iceberg.
1: We already hit and we're just like bidding on the seats to get off the ship. And so that's very different than like, we see the iceberg in the future and we're like, we might hit it. It's like, no, we've hit it. Yeah. (laughs) And everyone's trying to get off. So, um, I think that that's part of the super cycle theory is that this time is different because of the macro cycle. The macro backdrop is very different. Um, then we have an institutional component. So the institutions are a new player in the game. The institutions represent a lot of the wealth in the world. They manage that wealth, and they also are part of this legacy financial system of you know validation and integration with other types of trading, uh, for example, like different brokerages mm-hmm. and banks and whatnot. So uh, the institutions have fully bought in Bitcoin. It's wild. I didn't think it was going to happen this fast. So I would say like that is one of the number one indicators on my super cycle checklist would be like institutions piling into bitcoin. They for sure did. I mean, they, oh yeah. They piled in way faster, way harder than I thought, including corporates. I didn't that is a, like a double check mark on the super cycle theory, is corporates buying bitcoin. I did not really expect that to happen this soon. Um, so those are two huge check marks for the super mm-hmm. cycle theory. Um you know, I think as institutions buy it, retail looks to institutions as a social validation that this is legitimate asset. So people forget that as these institutions buy, that will spur more retail demand as well. And that 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 is a very intense, an intense feedback loop or reflexive sort of process. Um you know, and when we look at market penetration, Bitcoin has gone from like a very tiny percentage of the world, like 0.01% to like 0.1%. Like we still haven't even gotten a full percentage of the world population owning Bitcoin. So there's a huge amount of of adoption that can occur. So that these all point to the super cycle theory. And then also finally, content. Before to be a Bitcoiner, you really just had to believe in it. Now there's podcasts, videos, uh, courses, um, tons of conferences. There's custom onboarding to a lot of products. Like I know Unchained Capital and and, and Casa have like custom onboarding, like, and then they have great video tutorials. Um, none of this existed previously. And this what this means is more people that hear about Bitcoin will understand it and be able to buy it. And they'll likely stick around longer because they mm-hmm. understand it and they understand why it's valuable for them versus before it's very hard to buy it. And then they didn't understand it. So they quickly panic sold in the bear market. That's why I think the super cycle theory plays out. Big macro backdrop, institutions coming in. And then you know, what if we don't see as intensive a bear market before? Again, Bitcoin's value prop right now is about buying this lifeboat, people aren't just going to sell their seat on the lifeboat because they got off the ship. Now they're in the middle of the ocean. They still need the lifeboat. Yeah. So I, I very I very much doubt we're going to see a repeat of an 80% dip from the top again. You know, and it's too, So what does a super cycle look like if it does play out this way? By the way, I'm not saying that this will happen. I'm saying this is a possibility. I mm-hmm. brought it up because no one was thinking about it at the time. And I'm like, well, if no one's thinking about it, then I like to think about it because there's a small chance it would be because I have qualitative reasoning behind it Mm -hmm. on a quantitative level. What does this look like? So that would be Bitcoin, you know, going from like here to like half a million to a million dollars of Bitcoin at the peak, which would be really intense. So it's a, it's an an overly hot bull market or it's a normal bull market and less of a bear market. So like we go up to 250,000, 300,000, which is what everyone's predicting, which typically if everyone is predicting it, it's not going to do that. It's either going to shoot under or shoot over. Mm-hmm. Um, So we hit 300000 dollars, and then maybe we just dip to, you know, three. Say we go to three hundred, maybe we just dip to two hundred thousand, and that's that's the low. Mm-hmm. So that, that's what a bear market would, or that's what a super cycle would look like quantitatively. So via metrics, um, we'll see what happens over the next six months. I think it's going to be super thrilling. I've been hodling for eight years, so I'm. <laughs> you're not going <laughs> yeah. anywhere. Yeah, I'm not going any. I mean, I've waited the whole time for this moment. So I. Yeah it's super exciting to see it happen. Uh, gold 2.0 thesis is perfectly fit with the market. Everyone is getting it. All the institutions are like, oh yeah, it's gold. And I'm like, wow, everyone, like Goldman, JP Morgan, all the hedge funds, uh, even Tesla. And,
0: and it's crazy I mean, to see it. Well, and then do you see how uh, you know Michael Saylor, who keeps going further and further, is just today said that all the board is getting paid in Bitcoin now for MicroStrategy. I love that, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's crazy. And, and I mean, you know, to me, do you think that that, that narrative of it being too volatile is going away? Cause, um, I
1: think the world's becoming crazy, right? Like, like the stock market was insanely volatile. Bitcoin almost looks normal in this world. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, home asset prices are starting to skyrocket. Volatility has now entered the market in a way to where Bitcoin feels normal for people. And then also through time, you can't ignore the results. Yeah. It's volatile, but typically volatile to the upside. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, you can have your bonds that yield 1% a year, but you're going to get screwed on inflation or you can like grab onto the rocket ship and it's going to be a little bit of a zigzag course, but it's been going one direction the whole time.
0: Yeah. Somebody asked about the risk of banning, um, you know, and I mean, that's something that I think a lot of, you know, I'm not really afraid of it anymore. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I think it gets thrown around a lot, you know, and it's frequently in the FUD. Do you think that's something that you know could happen? Um, the U.S. government coming out and being like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa this thing's going to kill our financial dominance."
1: Yeah. So the the more institutions buy into Bitcoin, the less likely this scenario is going to happen. Because if every bank in the world owns it, if every hedge fund owns it, if every pension fund owns it, which represents millions of people, if every if twenty percent, thirty percent of the U.S. population owns it. Bitcoin becomes so ingrained, or, and then and Tesla owns it, and then say, if Apple and Google own it, then what do you, if you ban it, then all of a sudden your stock market tanks like 30%. Uh, as, a, as an elected official, you get voted out of office or not mm-hmm. reelected because you're, you're essentially trying to... Bitcoin has in, embedded itself so deeply into the system, it's impossible to root out. So I think that this is becoming an increasingly very unlikely scenario, this is where I'm all about adoption. More people holding Bitcoin is a skin in the game vote. There's no way that that will be taken out of the system when it hits a certain threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, now let's say that they don't care about that or the market penetration is low and they want to try to kill it. Uh, I find that pretty unlikely too. I mean, the war on drugs was pretty unsuccessful and same with the <laughs> war on alcohol. I mean, those are both failed uh, dramatically. Let's, let's bring this to the most dystopian version of this story, which is, what if they communicated with every other government in the world and they all tried to figure out how to ban Bitcoin? Well, I find that extremely unlikely because for two reasons. One, they haven't done that with climate change. And mm-hmm. so good luck coordinating for Bitcoin. Number two, the, the value of being a Confederate is enormous. If all the countries together in the world say we're, we're going to try to ban it, good luck getting China, Russia, and the US to agree upon something, much less every other country too. And now Russia has an incentive to defect. Where Russia's mm-hmm. like, ah, just kidding. We're not part of this. And we bought Bitcoin, by the way. So they front run mm-hmm. everyone else. <laughs> and all, yeah. all the other central banks are like, shit. Okay, well, we got to buy it now. So I think that, uh, yeah, just I, I find it very implausible that governments will successfully ban Bitcoin.
0: Yeah. Um, and, uh, and do you think, you know, a lot of people, they're listening to it. And like we mentioned earlier, they go, oh my God, you know, like once you get it, you try to rush other people in because it's like, it's going to be too late. You got to buy it. Um, you kind of mentioned where you think it's going to go with the super cycle. So, I mean, what would you say to people that are sitting there going, I haven't bought yet. You know, I can't buy it now. It's 60 grand. Like, you know, it's, I missed the boat. Um, it's
1: too expensive. Yeah.
0: <laughs> like that. Yeah, I
1: understand the feeling, but you've got to remove the human emotion from looking at Bitcoin's price tag at 60,000 and understand how much that is in market cap. Market cap that's around a trillion. A trillion dollar market cap is tiny compared to gold. Gold is $10 trillion. Ten trillion dollars. All the sovereign, all the uh, sovereign bonds in the world are worth like fifty trillion, and you have got thirteen trillion dollars of negative, negatively yielding sovereign bonds. <laughs> Essentially, this is where the lender pays the borrower to borrow from them, which is nuts. Yeah. Um, and then we have real estate at two hundred and fifty trillion. The world of the world of assets compared to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is still tiny, very, very tiny. In fact. Some institutions can now finally invest in Bitcoin because it's hit a trillion dollar market cap, which is the minimum market cap required for them to even consider it as an asset, like an, as, as an asset class. So um, Bitcoin is still very early in its trajectory. Now, will you have the crazy gains that people got when they got in at $10? Probably, probably, probably not. Because they going to be worth some crazy amount. But is it still a phenomenal investment? Absolutely. Um, especially for your return per unit of risk. I took a lot of risk early on. I mean, Bitcoin was could have died a lot of different ways, but it survived. And now you can get in, have a phenomenal return, but also the risk is really minimal. And this is a really mm-hmm. cool value prop of like buying Bitcoin now is you, you didn't have to go through what I went through, but you can still have a phenomenal upside. And even if you're not buying it just for price appreciation, even if you're buying it just for price appreciation, remember the core properties that it has are a way to store wealth That no one can seize from you, and that's a tremendous value, even if it remained flat. And you can send it anywhere in the world without anyone telling you if you can or can't. So, even if Bitcoin doesn't have as much price appreciation as it used to, those parameters that it has as money are are phenomenal,
0: Um, and that's Mm -hmm. valuable no matter how high how high the price is. That's great. That's great. Well, Dan, I appreciate it. Where can people find you?
1: Yeah. So. Twitter, it's Dan Held. Um, if you like my longer form thoughts, if you want to like really go down the rabbit hole with me, I've got a newsletter called The Held Report. So if you just Google that, it's the first search result. That's where weekly I give my deep dive insights into a variety of different topics around Bitcoin, from can governments ban Bitcoin to every, uh, gold versus Bitcoin. So if you subscribe there, uh, there's a free and paid tier, but I recommend checking that out. If you really like my thoughts today, that's where you're going to get my most in-depth thoughts. On Twitter is where I give you kind of my quick hits, how I feel for the day or kind of how I feel about the price moving or
0: different thoughts around Bitcoin. All right. Well, Dan, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Corey, thanks for having me. Cheers.